You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. We have been talking about how our criminal justice system treats Black youth, and I hope that my listeners will tune in to the program before this one, because that was our first podcast in a four-part series about this topic. So today we are asking, we are, we've asked Chris Henning, Professor Henning, to return. She spoke to us last time, and she is the author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. And I would like to continue our discussion. We we talked about so many topics last time. We have many more to cover. So what I'd like you to talk about, Chris, and welcome back, is the impact of being in an adult facility as an adolescent. And could you discuss Khalif Browder's very well-known case? And if anyone hasn't heard, I'm sure you will be moved by it when Chris talks about it. So tell us about that. Yeah. So why don't I start there? I mean, Khalif Browder was a 16-year-old boy who was um, accused of robbery. So he was uh, accused of stealing a book bag um, from a gentleman. And the witness, um, the complaining witness, the person whose book bag was taken, was... um, basically unable to give a a description or an adequate detailed description of the person who uh, robbed him. But somehow two weeks later, two weeks after he was robbed, he sees um, a Khalif Browder and maybe another Khalif Browder at the time may have been with a friend. um, And he says, oh, that's the guy who robbed me. Right. And so Khalif Browder gets uh, um, arrested uh, two weeks after a robbery and is adamant from day one. It wasn't me. You've got the wrong person. I have no idea what you're talking about. I did not rob anyone. Again, no one believed him whatsoever. He was arrested and sent to Rikers Island, right? Um, no, notoriously um, known or sort of notorious for being one of the um, more dangerous and violent uh, facilities in New York City, um, particularly at the time at which um, Khalif Browder was there. And um, it became pretty clear within weeks that the complaining witness, the, the victim who had indeed been robbed, had moved out of the country and was not coming back. Okay, so he was never going to be a witness for Khalif Browder. Mm. Yet the prosecutors never dismiss the case. The judge, you know, not until many years later, three years later, um, the judge doesn't dismiss the case. And they the prosecutors kept offering at various points to allow Khalif Browder to plead guilty. And he refused. Why? Because he was adamant that he did not do this. Um, And so here's what's really important about being sent to Rikers Island. He gets sent to Rikers Island for three years, pending trial. This in and of itself is an absolute atrocity. And there's no, you know, we would never do this. You know, Khalif Browder is an African-American kid. I, I really, you know, would wager money that we would never let a white child just languish um, for three years when it became pretty evident that this witness was not going to return. Um, so during the course of the three years, 
two, at least two of those years, you know, at varying points, he is held in solitary confinement. So you asked me about the, the, what is it like to be a teenager in an, an adult facility? Now, mind you, Rikers is an adult facility, but he's on a youth block within the facility, right? But with other teenagers in their adolescent years, right? The worst thing that we could possibly do for a teenager is to lock them up in prison during those adolescent years, right? Um, your, your development is stifled. The brain is malleable and is eager and willing to learn during those adolescent years. That's when you, um, you can test limits and be creative and um, learn what we call social emotional skills, which is just about learning how to engage with other people. Well, guess what? When you're in prison, you don't get those opportunities at all. It's a regimented rule-based um, uh, intolerant um, place to be. And so there's no opportunity for true, healthy adolescent brain development. So that's problem number one. <laughs> um, but in addition to that, you know, places like Rikers Island and, 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 you know, if he even like on a youth block and even um, in other places across the country, had he been on an adult block, it's it's all terrible. Like you're subject to abuse by other inmates. Um, if you're with adults, you're subject to abuse by adult inmates. You're subject to abuse by guards, whether you're on a youth block or on an adult block, right? The correctional officers in those um, facilities are not trained in adolescent development. They're not trained in adolescent de-escalation. So basically you've got a group of, you know, teenage boys you all know what teenage boys are like. <laughs> you know, talk about conflict in a facility in what we call congregate care on top of one another, right? Um, without good access to healthy food, without good, ex good opportunities for exercise, without good opportunities to sunlight, without opportunities for really meaningful educational and vocational opportunities. And then you put the child in solitary confinement right? Giving them very, very limited um, meals, you know, complete darkness. I mean, it's just absolutely devastating for adolescent development. It's unconscionable. It's unconscionable. Is what it is. Absolutely. And I didn't even mention sexual abuse, you know, yeah. is rampant, just all of that. It's the worst thing we can do for children. And so ultimately, Khalif Bowder is in um, Rikers for three years. Like I said, at least two of those years, you know, 24 of those months were in um, solitary confinement. He gets out and we think, you know, okay, he's going to make it, right? And his mental health issues, his mental health, um, which so completely deteriorated while he was in uh, Rikers, just really, he couldn't get ahead of it. And he ultimately took his own life after he was released. But I just, I want every single one of us oh. to imagine what it would be like when you know you're innocent, you're adamant that you're innocent, you never get a trial, you're in solitary confinement, you get beaten, and there are videos of him getting beaten by guards, you know, his property was stolen, shoes were stolen, clothes were stolen, you know, from him by other inmates. Um, it's just constant chaos um, and, and just lack of mental health care and services. And he gets out and he really goes to college um, for a minute and just 
um, really became the poster child for the, the need for reform of the criminal legal system. Um, and so he was a hero and still is for a while. And then again, um, he just couldn't take it and took his own life. So himself. So Imagine sad. how desperate you are. You hang yourself out of a window of your mother's uh, apartment. Just awful. Or mother's home, excuse me. It's a, it's a classic story, and it, it certainly ought to have us think about what we're doing and yeah. how how could we avoid an ending like that? It never mm. should have happened, right? That's right. Never should have happened. And Harriet, you know, kids commit suicide in facilities. I talk about another girl. I talk about another um, young person, Nisi Fennell, who, you know, I'll just, just say this, you know, it, you know, who took her own life in the facility. And it's not uncommon for teenagers mm. to kill themselves in adult facilities. They're not safe. They're not protected. No. And we're not, you know, keeping anybody, you know, safe. That's right. Our, our next guest following you will be Professor Laura Cohen from Rutgers University, and I might add a close friend of yours. Yes. And she is going to be talking about the topic of false confessions, which is a whole program in itself. That's right. Um, also, and she will probably address the research about the teen brain, which you definitely um, touched upon. And I always feel you cannot talk about that enough because it's right. so, so important. So that will be uh, coming up. Here's a statement from your book I'd like you to comment on. Quote, America's obsession with incarcerating Black Americans begins with Black children. Yeah. What do you, what do you want to say about that? What, what, uh, yeah. Where does that come from? Yeah. So where does that come from? Right. <laughs> so that America has um, a long history of failing to treat black children like children. Um, and it starts from the era of slavery when black children were the property of the purported master. Fast forward to the um, civil rights era and you can have a 14 year old black boy, Emmett Till, who is lynched. Um, why? Uh, he's lynched, to be quite frank, um, as a symbolic statement to all of America that we will not tolerate integration in any way. And in order to justify that, he's got to be demonized. And so you have what appears to be this sort of random, you know, encounter whereby um, he is accused of whistling at a white woman, right? So he's demonized as a threat to all of white America. But that case was so significant because it was this symbolic statement about um, perceptions, um, American perceptions of Black children and what their limitations and what their place in society must be, right? And so you, how dare you, you know, speak to a white woman or flirt with a white woman at all, right? But that's a symbolic statement right in the era of the civil rights movement. Fast forward to the the the, the 1990s um, and this super predator era, Right. And we've got this temporary uptick in crime. And, you know, we talk about this. Right. The politicians think they can they can um, have political gain. Right. From uh, associating blackness with criminality. Right. Yeah. And who becomes the primary targets of this super predator myth? 
it is black children and black boys in particular. Yeah. Um, and so how do you justify that? It's all about the explicit ways in which black children are demonized for political gain, um, to limit power, economic advantages. And so why do I say all of that? So then the these fears of, of black children live on in the American psyche. So even after the super predator myth is disproven, right. um, we, we have the legacy of fear. And so that means, Harriet, when average citizens walk down the street, they walk through a park and they see a black child, they are afraid. Right. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say that, you know, the the obsession with incarcerating black America begins with black children. We are afraid of black children, uniquely afraid, not because they are actually dangerous and threatening and aggressive, but because of the historical narrative that has been laid for us throughout history has now um, become a part of our subconscious thinking, even when we're not aware of it. Yeah. Good. That, that explains that statement very, very well. Now I'm going to switch gears here. You have a very personal story about the criminal justice system and how it has affected your family. I'm certain that that was a very difficult section in the book to write. Will you share it with us? Yeah, it, it is. I, I say all the time, it is almost impossible to be uh, a Black woman uh, in America or a Black person in America who has not been impacted in some pretty direct way by the criminal legal system, regardless of class, regardless of educational attainment, um, regardless of you know your position or title within society. And so my family is no is no different. Um, I had a brother who um, was you know caught up into the criminal legal system. Um, and in his early days, caught up in the legal system for being a kid, really, um, and the just the absolute tolerant intolerance of, of Black children being Black children and acting like children. Um, and so ultimately, though, unfortunately, you know, he lost his life within the criminal legal system, right? Um, and so it was extremely, extremely, extremely hard to write that um, yeah. section and to write those sections at various points. And I end up writing about it in a chapter I call um, the, uh, the Black Family in the Era of Mass Incarceration, right? Um, and I talk about how difficult it is to be, you know, a black parent or to be a black sibling and to have, you know, family members who have been lost through the criminal legal system, whether it's the parents of, of black children who have been gunned down, to yeah. be quite frank, the Tamir Rices and the, you know, the Mike Browns and, you know, others who have been killed, unfortunately, at the hands of police, as well as, you know, it is to be a Black family member whose child or sibling has gone to prison for extended periods of time. Um, and so I struggled writing that chapter and having to share that with my own living sibling and saying, hey, I want to publish this. I want to print this. Are you OK with talking about it? And then, you know, the final thing I'll say about that chapter in particular is I really wanted to be careful 
when I give voice to somebody else's story, like Tamir Rice's mother's story, Samaria Rice's story, or, you know, Jordan Edwards or Jordan Davis's parents, that I wanted to listen to their voices. So I listened to, you know, um, newsreels of them being interviewed and documentaries of them being interviewed and, you know, um, read interviews by them because I only wanted to use their quotes, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to uh, imagine what it would be like. And so that was really a difficult chapter, you know, to do the research to tell those stories um, and then to relive my own. Of course. Yeah. Well, thank you for your sharing it with us. Um, what was the impact on you writing the book? I was overwhelmed at the amount of citations included at the end, about 120 pages. How long a project was this book for you to put together from beginning to end? Oh, what a great question. Um, I would say it was about uh, a four-year process. And I will say, and I really want your audience to hear this, you talk about the stories. So that when I, I'm a law professor, right? And so we law professors have a very bad habit of writing academic um, speak, right? Big words, <laughs> fancy words or whatever. Right. So I don't want anybody to be intimidated by the footnotes. The footnotes are relegated <laughs> to the back of the book. So if you don't ever want to read the, the footnotes, you don't have to. But what I wanted, so, so why, part of why it took so long to write this is that as I said at the beginning, I really wanted to give voice to the children that I represented. I wanted to tell their stories, but then I also wanted to help readers understand their stories through the research. So each time I would tell a story for myself, I would think about it in some, in, 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 in some research or data that would help explain it. And then the more research I would do, ooh, I would remember another story, right? And so it just kept working back and forth, back and forth. But even when I finished sort of the first draft, if you will, sketch or outline or draft, I, you know, was sharing various pieces with my friends and they were like, ooh, you know, this is really good, but it sounds way too academic. If you want this to be a mass press book, and a book for a mass audience, you're going to have to rewrite this even more um, as, as, as storytelling and um, figuring out how to weave together these stories and the research in a way that everybody can understand. So that's honestly, Harriet, what took so long mm -hmm. is the going back and starting over. So I could tell it in a way that actually now, Harriet, I've got teenagers who read the book and really? I, you know who do book clubs around the book. Wow. Um, who have interviewed me around the book. So it's very accessible um, for high school kids, middle school kids, as well as adults like you and me. That's fantastic. That That's kind of a lead into my next question, which is what do you hope your book will accomplish in terms of changes for the way Black youth are treated in our justice system? Thank you for that question. I, I want every single reader to pick up this book and to find themselves in the book. So what do I mean by that? I want them to read those stories and say, wow, I did that when I was a kid, or my child did that just last week, <laughs> because they're still a child, right? And I want you to remember that you didn't get arrested for that. 
You weren't expelled or suspended from school for that. You weren't demonized for that. And guess what? You are just fine. And many of your listeners are thriving and doing wonderfully, even though they did silly, impulsive, reactive things during childhood, even though they made mistakes as a teenager. So that's number one. I want them to see themselves. I also want them <clears throat> to get you know, proximate, if you will, with the with black children and to hear and see and feel the trauma that I describe in the book um, uh, that black children live through. Because I think it's those kinds of stories that change hearts and change minds and make people really want to make a difference, that make individual readers want to go to their local lawmakers and say, well, we need to rethink how we are policing, that we don't need um, uh, traditional law enforcement strategies for for, to keep our kids safe, either in school or in the community. In the book, I advocate for a public health approach to school safety and to community safety, which is really attentive to the relationships between children and adults that focuses on racial equity, that is trauma-informed, and that seeks restorative justice, right? So what does that look like? You know, you know, on the ground, it means we have a continuum of mental health counselors and providers in school systems. It means we teach social emotional learning in the school system. It means that we um, uh, have vocational opportunities in the school system. Um, things like that, instead right. of police officers and um, metal detectors and surveillance cameras in schools. Right. Thank um, we have just a few minutes left of our, our time together. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, how do we help Black kids who have had tense and negative dealings with the police during their early years and into their adolescence? How do we help them? That's a, also a great question. I think um, we have the the difficult sort of um, balance of really just, you know, we have to be honest with kids and we have to um, help them understand how they are perceived in society and often, unfortunately, perceived in some racially biased ways. So they need to know that so that they can be safe, right? So that they can, we teach them, you know, Black parents have to give kids the talk just cooperate with police, right? You know, be respectful, get home safe. Um, we have to do that on one hand. At the same time though, Harriet, we also have to give children a, a, a safe space in which they can talk about their fears, right? And which they can um, talk about how they would like society to look differently. We can't just end by saying, hey, cooperate, you know, be respectful and safe with the police without also acknowledging that they're afraid and that they, but also, um, so not only giving them space to talk about how they want the world to look differently, um, but then also reminding them how wonderful and smart and resilient they are. 
creating opportunities for them to thrive. That's the way in which you begin to improve police relationships. And so people ask me, well, how do you get police officers and young people to get to know one another? Well, police officers need to show up in non-traditional ways without the uniform, right? And if they want to mentor and volunteer, they need to do so outside of the school system, outside of these traditional law enforcement contexts, right? Um, And just get to know kids as kids without the uniform on, without the power of arrest, without the power of reprimand, and just get to know kids without 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 the uniform and authority. But it also works the other way. The kids have to get to know them, the police, without, you know, their their uh, trappings, so to speak. They have to get to know each other. And I, I think uh, that's a great suggestion. Well, I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about your book. Our listening audience is certainly more informed after hearing all that you had to say today. And I encourage people to get the book. The next time on Pursuing Justice, as I had said, we will be hearing from Professor Laura Cohen um, from Rutgers and also Hugh Burton, who she represented, who falsely confessed to the murder of his mother in 1989 as a 16-year-old. So we will be continuing to talk about this topic. And thank you once again. Professor Henning, for your time and your expertise and your book. It was a pleasure to meet you today. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, I hope you'll tune in next time to Pursuing Justice. This is Harriet Handel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.